the Gospel of Matthew, and we pick up in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 1. So let's start with Matthew chapter 24. And while you're finding that, I really like that little ditty that uh, we heard that Glenn gave us. It's one thing to be a Christian and know it, another thing to be a Christian and show it, isn't it? That's what we're supposed to do. They shall know we are Christians by our love, right? Okay, Matthew 24. So this is a section that's uh, called the Olivet Discourse. And it's a section on prophecy. Chapters 24 and 25 are prophetic chapters and constitute the prophetic section of this gospel. And many pastors and uh, prophecy teachers, I was going to say prophecy nuts, but prophecy teachers... uh, have murdered these chapters. They have misinterpreted these chapters. And as a result, you get every kind of bizarre theory and sermon under the sun. And I hope we don't end up doing that, because they are hard chapters to interpret. But I'm convinced people misinterpret these chapters because of three reasons. Number one, they read into the text. They impose their own beliefs on the text. So they have a certain theory, and then they just read it right in there. That's reading into the text. Reading your preconceived ideas or doctrines into the text. Second mistake they make is that they read over the text. In other words, they skip words and verses that don't fit their theories. Just read over it. And then the third reason I think they make their mistakes is they read the text apart from its context. These verses were written in a certain historical and cultural context. And a literary context. If you don't find the context of the verses, then you will not find the meaning of the verses. So we need to make sure we don't read into the text, we don't read over the text, and we don't read the text apart from its context. So what is the context? Jesus has come into the city of Jerusalem. He has gone into the temple area and he's overthrown the temple, right? He's overthrown the tables in the temple. He pronounces judgment on the religious leaders. Woe to you! You remember those passages that we dealt with? And then we look at the end of chapter 23 and verses uh, 37 through uh, 39, that little last section there, it says, Oh, Jerusalem, this is all in red, Jesus is saying this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who killed the prophets, who stones those who sent her, or sent to her. How often I would have gathered you as a uh, your children together as a, a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So, you know, I wanted to just gather you together, but you just resisted, and especially her religious leaders have resisted. Now watch this. Look at verse 38. See? Your house is left desolate. And the house there is the temple. That's the house of God. It's left desolate. Now he's already overturned the money changers, the tables of the money changers, and now he's making a prophecy. He is saying, take a look. Look into the future, in a sense. Your house, the house of God, is left desolate. He's pronouncing judgment on the temple. And then look what he says. Because, or for, I say unto you, you shall see me no more 
So you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay? So what we have is we have this lament and this prophecy. And the prophecy deals with two issues. Verse 38 and 39. Verse 38, it deals with the temple. The temple is going to be left desolate. It's a judgment upon the religious establishment. Prophecy number two is found in verse 39. You will see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Two issues. You got it? Two issues. The temple and his coming. Now, when will they see him again? He says, You will not see me until what? You say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see that? Now, that's the context for chapter 24. That prophecy. Okay, so you ready? With the context, we can read it, and I think it starts making sense. So let's read verse 1. And this will be scene number 1. Okay? Then Jesus went out. And he departed from the temple. He went out of the temple. See, we're still dealing with the temple. And he departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the building. He leaves and they come up and they show him the buildings of the temple. They say, look at those buildings. Wow. Did you ever see anything like it? Now remember, the temple was like, you know, like one of the wonders of the world. It took nearly 90 years to build that temple. When you think of the temple, I want you to think of the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. It took like 100 years to build that thing. When I was in seminary in Washington, D.C., the National Cathedral was still being built. There were wings that were being built. King Herod began to build this temple in 19 B.C. It wasn't complete until 63 A.D. And they're just, they say... And what has Jesus just said about the temple? Desolate. And they look at it. Gee, look at that temple. Wow. Have you ever seen anything like it? You know, they're showing him the temple. Now look at Jesus' response. It's very interesting. Jesus said, Do you not see all these things? I think maybe you're missing something. They said, Look at the temple. What does Jesus say? Uh, you take a look at the temple. And he explains why he wants them to look at the temple. Because it is indeed magnificent. Look what he says at the end of verse 2. Assuredly, which speaks of certainty, no doubt. Truly, truly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Wow. He said it's going to be thrown down in a day, and it took about 90 years to build it. That sounds outlandish. Now, let me show you how outlandish it sounds. Just imagine that you're a tour guide in New York City, and you're taking people around to see all the sights. It's September 10th, 2001. And you showed them these unbelievable two towers. So look at those things. You look up and you go, wow! Never seen anything like it! Now imagine someone in the crowd saying, you know something? Within a day, those towers are going to be 
down to the ground and stuck in the really thick stand. You'd say, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. That's inconceivable. That's what you have here. Does that make sense? You have to see things the way they were in that day and what people thought of the temple. Jesus predicts that it's going to be thrown down. That's scene number one. And now look at scene number two. Look at verse three. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, this is west of the city. He's gone out across the Kidron Valley. He's gone up on a Incline, and he's up on the Mount of Olives, and he is looking down over the city, and he sees the temple. Now, this took probably place sometime later, right? At least an hour or two later, maybe a day or two later. We don't know exactly, not a day or two later, but it took some time to get out to that mount. So he goes up on the mount, he sits down on the mount, like a teacher, and his disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What thing? Oh, when is this going to happen? When is this temple going to be destroyed? When is it going to fall? Can you give us some estimate? When? When? That's a timing issue. When is this going to happen? And they talk about two things. Look at this. And what will be the sign of your coming? The sign of your coming. And the end of the age. Two things. The sign of your coming and the end of the age. Now, has Jesus talked about coming? Yes, back in verse 39. He said, you won't see me again until what? You say, blessed is he who what? Comes in the name of the Lord. So there's the context. Do you see that? You need to make sure you understand this. Now, in the Jewish mind, what they're thinking is that when Messiah comes... He's going to end the Jewish rule and he's going to take over. He's going to be Messiah. He's going to rule, set up the kingdom of God. So they say, well, when is this going to happen? When is the temple going to fall? When's the, the, the Jewish establishment going to be kicked out? And when are you going to take over as Messiah? And they say it by asking, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, are you ready for this? I'm going to show you a mistake that we make. Here's how we read into the scripture. When they ask this question, what will be the sign of your coming? We immediately impose upon that text and we say, that means what will be the sign of your second coming? Don't we? Well, that's easy to say 2,000 years later. But that's not what they're thinking. Jesus has left the city. They just want to know when you're going to go back into the city, when you're coming back into the city, destroy the religious establishment and set up your kingdom. Take over. They don't know that he's going to die. They're not thinking of him dying. They're not thinking of him being resurrected and going to heaven and coming again the second time. They're just asking when you're going to come back into the city. And people are going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, he went into the city the first time on the day of on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Remember that day? What did they say? Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. You can see it right there in chapter 21. This is the context, the immediate context, the real context. These people aren't thinking second coming. They are thinking, when are you going to go back? When's this going to happen? When is this all going to happen? Okay? So, it's really important that you get this. Okay? That's what they're thinking. Okay? That word coming there, the sign of your coming, 
is the word that was used for kings going into a city, proclaiming, marching into a city, proclaiming their victory over their enemies and taking over. And that's what they want to know. When are you going to come in and take over? That's what they're asking. Okay? Now, the second thing I want you to notice, you still with me? Okay. Just watch how all this plays out. Look at the word sign there. you see that? It doesn't say what will be the signs of your coming. What does it say? Singular. See the definite article? What will be the sign? One sign of your coming. What will be the sign that you're coming to tear down the temple and set up your kingdom? Singular sign. One sign. How many times? Have you heard preachers preach what we're going to cover today in class and title their sermon, The Signs of the Time, plural. And then they give you all these different signs. See? Why did they do that? Because well, they're reading into the text. They're reading over the text. They don't see the sign. What do they see? Signs. They're reading. They, they just skip right over the word singular. They, they read into the text. They read over the text. And they read it apart from the context. So they're asking him, what's the one sign that you're going to come? And I think that they just mean go back into the city and do what you just said back in verses 38 and 39. So, <clears throat> Jesus answers in verse 4. And he said to them, and he's going to deal with this word in. See? Notice in verse 3, what will be the sign of your coming, and the end of the age. He's just going to talk about the end of the Jewish rule when the temple is going to be destroyed. He's going to leave his coming to a little later in the passage, which we'll see next week, and I'll show you how all this works out. So he's going to deal with this end question. Okay, Here's what he says in verse 4. He said, and here's where past preachers make mistakes. They'll say, sign number one, sign number two, <laughs> sign number two. Watch what he says, verse 4. Jesus answered and said, Take heed that no one deceives you. Be on guard. Don't be caught off guard. Why? Because many will come in my name saying, I am Messiah. They'll claim to be the Christ and the Messiah. Not that they won't be. They'll be pretenders. And will deceive many. Okay. So the first thing he says, before the temple can be destroyed, the end of Jewish rule will be, that there'll be false Christ, false messiahs coming along. That certainly happened all the way through the first century. Okay? So, that has to happen prior to the destruction of the temple. False Christ, pretenders, who deceive many. Okay? This isn't one of the signs at all. He just says this has to happen first. So don't read into the text. Now the disciples are sitting there. Now look what he says. By the way, these are the things that are going to happen in their lifetime. It's going to happen in their lifetime. Many Christ will come to see many. That's going to happen in their lifetime. How do you know that? How do you know that, Street? Why are you always so sure of yourself? <laughs> well, look at verse 4. You see that pronoun? Take heed that no one deceives who? You! You! 
You guys sitting right here. These are things that are going to happen in their life. They don't read over that. You. You see that? Now, look at verse 6. This is going to be a second event that's going to take place. It's not a sign. This is just the event prior to the destruction of the temple. And who? You. Who? Who? You. You guys sitting here. The twelve and maybe whoever else is sitting there. Some other disciples. You. Look. You will hear wars and rumors of war. Okay? So that means there's going to be real wars that are going to be going on that you're going to hear during this period of time. And there'll be maybe unconfirmed wars. See that. Look. You are not troubled. Who? You. You're sitting right there. See, we always want to make this for our time, but who is it for? It's for their time. Do you see that? We're talking about context. Look. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. Now, I love this. Watch this very carefully. Don't be worried. Why not? Look, you don't be worried. Right? See that you're not worried. Peter, don't be worried. James, don't be worried. Andrew, don't be worried. Why? For all these things must come to pass, but what? The end is not yet. Wait a second. What does it say? The end is not yet. They ask a question. What will be the sign of your coming and the what? End of the age. This can't be a sign because it says when this happens, what? The end is not yet. That's the opposite of the end happening, isn't it? That's not going to be the end. See? That's not the sign. And yet, how many times have you heard preachers talk about, well, let's talk about the signs of the time. Number one, false Christ. Number two, wars and rumors of war. Do we have wars? Yes, there's one going on in Syria right now. All happening in the first century. Okay? Still with me? Now we have the next series of events that have to happen before this temple is destroyed. And the end of the Jewish rule. The end of their time for ruling. Look at verse, whatever it is, 6. <laughs> 7. Verse 7. For nation shall rise against nation. That's another one. It's not a sign, though. It's just an event that's going to happen. Kingdom against kingdom. We're going to call those man-made disasters. Man-made wars. And, look what else in verse 7. Here's like the fifth or sixth thing that has to happen. There will be famines. Pestilences, diseases, and earthquakes in various places. The first two are natural disasters, uh, man-made disasters. The last three are natural disasters. Are these signs of the end? No, these are things that are going to happen in the first century. Okay? You say, come on, I don't believe that. That's exactly what the text says. They're not signs of the end. In fact, look what verse 8 says. All these things are what? What does verse 8 say? All these things are what? Does that sound like end? That sounds like beginning. Does it say end or does it say beginning? Now you can't have anything further from the end than the... Just the opposite. If you just read the text, it makes sense. But when you don't read the text and you read over the text, you can read anything into the text. So here's our sermon. Ready? The signs of the time. Preacher, preacher. Here it is. False Christ science. 
Who was the next one? Huh? Wars, rumors of wars, you know, all these times. Oh, you just go down. We have about seven of these. These are all the signs of the end. It says in verse 8, no, this is what? The beginning, that's just the opposite of the end. Okay? Now, you still with me? So all these things happen. We know that in Acts 11.27, we're told about a famine. Paul takes a collection to take care of that famine in the church of Jerusalem. We know that there are false Christs that show up. We know there are earthquakes. There was a big earthquake in Laodicea in 61 A.D. We know that Pompeii was destroyed in 63 A.D. So you have all these things taking place. We have a lot of false prophets in the book of Acts. All these things are happening during that first century. Now look at the next event. Look at verse 9. They will deliver you up to tribulation, meaning suffering or persecution, and will kill you. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, who's, who's this going to happen to? Look at verse 9. They'll deliver what? You up. You see that? Kill you. You will be hated. Uh, this is talking about persecution. And martyrdom. Every time Paul went to a city to preach, he was persecuted, thrown in jail, beaten, and eventually martyred. Peter was martyred, Paul was martyred, Stephen was martyred, James had his head cut off in Acts chapter 12. All for Christ's sake. All that happens in their time. Now look at verse 10. Verse 10. And then many will be offended. Who, are, who will be offended? Will betray one another. Yes, we even have Judas betraying. And Paul says, and Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. So you have people betraying each other, hating one another. Okay. Look at the next event. I think it's like event 10 or something. Verse 11. Many false prophets will come on the scene and deceive many. We know that happens. Paul says, as soon as I leave the church of Ephesus, false prophets are going to come in. Wolves are going to come in. All kinds of false prophets in the first century. Look at events 11 and 12, verse 12. And because the lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Will many become apostates? Yes, does even, even uh, John writes about Laodicea. You become, you're either hot or cold, you're like lukewarm. You know, there's no, there's no zeal anymore that's going on. You see all that kind of stuff happening. You see in verse 12, because the lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. But he endures to the end, meaning to the uttermost, or to death. That's what this means at this particular point. He endures to death, shall be saved. If you don't deny Christ, you stay faithful to Christ, you suffer the persecution, you are martyred, then you will be delivered. And you will be delivered in the resurrection. You know, that's when that's going to happen. Okay. Now, these are characteristics that will come prior to the destruction of the temple and the end of Jewish rule in Jerusalem. No doubt about that. But this isn't the sign. The sign. Now there's one more disciples event, event that must happen. Okay, so look at verse 14. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then, what? Now, what's one thing that must happen before the end comes? The end of the Jewish rule, the end of the temple. What's the one thing that must happen? The gospel must be preached, right? This would be the fulfillment of the great commandment. 
Okay, now watch this, because you have to listen very carefully. I want you to look at the details of the text, and I don't want you to read over the text. Okay? First of all, I want you to know the certainty of that statement. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached. Then the end will come. Certainty that this will happen. You see that? Second of all, I want you to notice the description of the gospel. The nature of the gospel that must be preached for the end to come. Notice it's called the gospel of what? The kingdom. See, the gospel of the kingdom. This is why I'm so big on kingdoms. I'm convinced that the true gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. This gospel of the kingdom was preached to the known world at that time. Not to the native Indians in America. Columbus hadn't discovered that yet. Their known world was the world of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was made up of all kinds of nations. And beyond the borders of the Roman Empire, well, there were other kingdoms. And this is talking about going out and preaching this gospel of the kingdom to all nations. That's why Paul is so excited when he's arrested and he appeals to Caesar so he can go right to the capital city of the empire, goes to the city of Rome. And you know what he preaches when he's in the city of Rome? You ever notice that? Look over at Acts 28, the last chapter of Acts. We have time. We could really spend a lot of time on this particular issue. But look at Acts 28. <clears throat> And when you get there, you're, you're in the last chapter. Just look down to the last two verses. Look what it says. Acts 28 and verse 30. He's in Rome under house arrest. Acts 28, 30. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, and he received all who came to him, preaching what? What did he preach? When he reached Rome, he considered that this gospel of the kingdom had been preached into all the world. That's why Paul was thought something very significant was going to happen in his lifetime, because he indeed preached the gospel of the kingdom throughout the entire Roman Empire. And he thinks something's going to happen. Uh, we also know, and I'm just going to have you jot these scriptures down because of time, but... You can jot down Romans 10.18. Just jot it down. It says the gospel in Paul's day had reached the entire known world. And you can jot down Colossians 1.6. And when you do that, and you read these verses, and verses like, these same people who were over there have come here and they're turning the whole world upside down. You'll realize that Paul believes, and the apostles believe, that they had fulfilled the Great Commission by 67 A.D., which is very interesting. Uh, so, uh, it's no surprise then when the temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. Because all the, all the events that had to happen before the end of the temple came indeed were fulfilled in 70 A.D. Okay. So does that make sense so far? Still with me? Now, when the apostles asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming? They're not thinking of second coming. They're thinking, when are you going to come back into the city and take over? Uh, well, that wasn't Jesus' plan, was it? 
That was the question they asked. That was the intent of the question they asked. But that didn't happen. What happened instead? When he goes back into the city the second time, what do they do to him? Arrest him, crucify him, and he's raised from the dead. He ascends into heaven. Is that correct? So, the next time he comes, he said, you won't see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you know when that's going to happen? That is going to happen at the second coming. We know that now. But the apostles didn't understand that before the death of Christ. They're thinking he's just going to come in and take over Jerusalem and the world. So, all these things, none of these are signs. These are just events that have to happen before the temple's destroyed and the Jewish rulers are replaced. And then, of course, in the interim, guess what Christ does? Since the Holy Spirit, he establishes the church, and we occupy until he comes again. Okay? So, what is the sign? Because they ask about it, didn't they? What's the sign of your coming? Okay. Well, the sign is not mentioned until you look in Matthew 24, and down at verse 30. Verse 30. Here's the sign. Watch this. Then the sign. Do you see that? Now, we have, we're not dealing with this passage this week. I'm just showing it to you. We'll deal with it next week. Look. Then the sign. How many signs? The sign, look at this. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. So where's the sign going to be? It's going to be in heaven. You see that? Will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man, look, coming, there's the word coming, in the clouds of heaven with great glory. He will send his angels with a great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four corners from one end of heaven to the other. There is the one sign right there that will precede his coming. And when it happens, no one will miss it. There will be no one who doesn't see it. Even the people who have died between the first century and when he comes, they're going to see it. Because the dead in Christ are going to what? Rise first, they're going to see it. And we who are alive, guess what? We're going to see it too. So you see, when you do, when you just deal with the text, uh, a new model emerges. Okay? So let me just recapitulate here. The events in verse 24, 1 through 14, are taking place in 30 AD. Does everybody agree with that? 30 to 33 AD? That's when those events are taking place. When the disciples say, Tell us when you're coming. They're thinking, they're not thinking death, resurrection, second coming. They think he's just going to come back into the city, overthrow the Jewish leaders, and take over. And that's when the temple will be destroyed. He'll reclaim the temple for himself, or whatever he's going to do. Okay? That's what they're thinking. Now listen carefully. Because if you want to have a Bible college education, level education in the Sundays, we have to listen. Now you ready to listen? Everybody have your thinking cap on? These events took place in 30 when they asked the question. But this gospel wasn't written for 50 years later. When was the gospel written? 
70 AD, 80 AD, we're not sure, but it was 50 years later it was written. So when Matthew's audience reads it, they know Jesus didn't march back into the city and overthrow the Jewish government, don't they? They know what happened to him. What happened to him? He ended up dying. They knew he was resurrected. They knew he had ascended in heaven and sat at God's right hand. They knew that when Jesus talks about the coming, he's talking about it in terms of second coming. See, they understood that. They knew that they were living between the age of his first coming and his second coming. And they knew they had a job. They were to wait and occupy until he came. They had a job to do in this interim period. Now look, we're reading this 2,000 years later. We're just like Matthew's audience. We know he didn't go back into the city <laughs> and overthrow the temple and the Jewish leaders. We know that they took care of him. <laughs> just the opposite. But we also know that God raised him from the dead and he ascends on high and he has established the church and we've got a job to do between now and then, which we're not talking about today. But we know also that one day he's going to come and everybody will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when it happens, none of us will miss it because the sign will be given. It's a sign that everyone will see in the heavens. The Son of Man coming in the clouds. So between now and then, we have a job to do. And we must be at it. We must all be at it. We must always be at it. And then one day, we shall behold him in all of his glory. Amen. Lord, thank you for a passage that's so difficult that we have to wrestle with and struggle with in order to get the gist of the meaning. And even then, Lord, we, we don't know how off we are in small details, but, but we've tried to handle the text honestly. Take it for what it says, word for word, in its original context. Now, Lord, help us to do what we're required to do. Help us to be positive witnesses of Christ that many others can come into the kingdom and find eternal life. In his name we pray. Amen.